Welcome to the inaugural episode of Residentially Speaking, a podcast dedicated to bringing you interesting and informative content from key builders, dealers, thought leaders, and influencers across the residential construction industry. I'm your host, Alan Hubble. Mark LaLiberté, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Alan Hubble. How are you? Nice to be here. I'm doing great. You know, I'm, I'm so excited to have you here, and I'm so pleased that you could join us for this, our inaugural episode. Um, as I was thinking about who our first guest should be, um, I thought it important to have someone, you know, who's aligned with our vision and mission of educating the industry and driving good building practices. Check. You meet that box, clearly. Someone who knows building science. Check. That's you. Someone devoted to educating the uh, industry and, and, you know, sharing the fundamentals of, of good science and physics, maybe even a little bit of chemistry thrown in. Check. And then someone who's um, engaging, experienced, interesting, provocative, um, a thought leader who can challenge us. So I'm really, I just can't tell you how pleased I am to have you with us today. And uh, there's nobody better than you to kick off this first episode for us. Well, that's incredibly kind, Alan. I'll just try to measure up to half of those. Um, it's such a pleasure to be a part of this industry, as you know. And so there's not, uh, whenever I speak with builders, I always ask them, how long have you been in the industry? And they'll always talk about long years but none of us can really get out of it. And I think it's one of those beautiful industries that uh, once you start, um, you really love being a part of such a great business that builds houses and, and buildings for people. And uh, what a beautiful legacy it leads. So thanks for inviting me. That's noted building science educator and construction industry thought leader, Mark LaLiberté. Mark is a co-founder and principal of Construction Instruction. For over 30 years, he has devoted his time educating the building industry about the benefits of applying building science to constructing durable, energy efficient, and healthier homes. You're a heavy traveler, at least in the days before COVID. I know you were on the road a lot. There's something like 50,000 plus builders in the, in the US. Not sure what the number is in Canada. But I imagine as much as you travel, you still haven't gotten to all of them. So there's probably some people out there that don't know who you are. Could you just give us a quick, uh, for those who don't know you, or for those who do know you, a little bit about your background and how, how you got into the construction industry uh, in general? Oh, and I'd love to. And there's a lot more than that that haven't. Um, I mean, the great thing about our industry is we're seeing some uh, uh, new people coming into the marketplaces. They're always, as every industry sees attrition. And I think this has been an exciting and interesting time, right? As uh, post-COVID happens, but I really got started about 1984 uh, in Minneapolis. I had a company there called called uh, Shelter Supply, and we were working in the idea that we're going to build uh, healthier, safer buildings and look at ventilation and energy efficiency. You know, the oil embargo of 74, 75 created a much bigger focus on the fact that energy was a bigger topic. So watching that evolution of it, um, my background is, in, is really in solar engineering and energy conservation. But so I had a company that we, uh, we consider ourselves experts in selling products nobody wanted. And that was really ventilation and flashing equipment and filtration and air sealing stuff. And uh, did that for quite a while. Um, and then I moved that, I sold that company and then we moved on into a, a business called Construction Instruction basically. And Construction Instruction is really the company that we are now. And I think that the evolution of that business has been that over all those years, um, I probably trained um, 
literally, uh, you know, between five and 10,000 people a year. Uh, I think in, in for decades, I was traveling between 100 and 150,000 air miles a year. Wow. Just trying to go to so many markets and so many people and working with builders and going to job sites and really watching what was changing and what was happening and coaching everybody to say, hey, we can do a little better. Uh, so that's been part of an exciting part of, of my career is to be a part of this and met so many amazing people like yourself along the way uh, with uh, Dr. Steve Rick and the teams that have all done work there. You can all, all see this evolution of a building science community that's really grown and appreciated that because I, I think that the, at the stage we are at now, we've realized that the building science is pretty clear. And we understand, you know, you manage water, you manage air, the fundamentals we'll talk about uh, further here is really pretty clear. And now it's about helping our industry actually execute and deliver on this promise to uh, build healthy, safe, durable, efficient buildings that are beautiful. And um, that's been my focus as a, in my whole career. And um, uh, it's exciting to be a part of that. And, and again, having people like you uh, driving change. And so you've worked with builders, you work with contractors, and then you also work with some dealers, right? Uh, sales teams and so forth, and um, how to you know how to promote good building practices. That's correct. You know, I think that uh, the industry is always challenged by that. Uh, our our industry in terms of how it buys and how it uh, sees opportunity and change. So architects design buildings, kind of pass that up the channel. So each time it goes, we know that trade contractors are, are sometimes a challenge, right? We. Um, uh, I've done things for 20 years. I hear that comment more often than I can tell you. I've been doing it like this for 20 years, so it must be right. And um, you can do something wrong for 20 years, and it's still wrong at the end of 20 years. And so part of the evolution of our industry is it's very complicated. You know, you have 25, 30 trade contractors descending onto a home that uh, could take months or even years to build based on its size and realizing how much knowledge uh, we expect, or I should say assume, is known. And our, our industry hasn't had a good chance to learn, um, you know, other, other than uh, what we say trial and error. Uh, job site training is really uh, here's a new new employee. Go on to go with Bob or go with Susan, and uh, they'll get you up to speed. And good luck, you know. May the force be with you, and you assimilate this knowledge over time. And uh, we don't really have a great formal training program. As you know, carpentry used to do that. We'd have a, an apprentice and a journeyman and a master, but those programs have really changed and, and don't really exist. So unfortunately, I can go to every city in the country, walk through even communities in other parts of the country, and there's almost no two ways that they're done the same. So uh, that's part of our disconnect. So that teaching people how to communicate with the builder, show them what the technology is, maybe coach them and sell them uh, on, a, on a technology has been working with lumberyards, working with distributors and manufacturers to say, we're struggling to get this message out. Who's the audience? And um, we distill that down and then try to coach them. I mean, it's really amazing that we can build a home at all. I've seen you use a picture where you have like all the parts and pieces in a home <laughs> dumped in a driveway. And you're, I think the analogy you draw is imagine if that's how you got your car, right? You have to build your own car with all these parts and pieces. And um, it, it, that visual is just, it, it's ingrained in my brain, you know, the one, the one that uh, shows all those various parts and pieces. Yeah, it's just quite true, actually. If, if you think about somebody, you buy a car and they'd throw all the parts on the driveway and, and whoever came by potentially at lowest bid could put it together. At the end, they'd go, hey, I got a few parts left over, but I think it's going to be fine. Um, if we look at our housing industry, you know, we've been framing houses and building houses pretty much the same since the mid to late 1800s. And, you know, if you look at how I, I've, I've had seen side by side pictures of the lumber gets dumped in the mud, 
uh, a crew shows up uh, and they start assembling. And um, I, I posted recently on, a, on an Instagram post, an idea of some pretty sloppy framing that was done. And all the comments came back. I can't believe this is being done. And I can't believe someone did that. And it's hard to believe we still frame like that, but unfortunately we do. And um, you know, with the cost of lumber happening and, and what's going on now, I think people are starting to take a look at our industry as a whole saying, where can we do better? What can we do to manage cost? And I think that uh, it is amazing that we still do things the way we used to. Yeah, it really is amazing. So tell me a little bit about uh, construction instruction. You've all these years on the road, you and your partners, uh, Justin Wilson and Gord Cook decided to put um, some, some uh, brick, build some brick and mortar, I guess, and, and bring uh, builders, contractors, so forth, those to your facility. I think you're in Denver. And um, tell us about how that idea got started and, and what the effect has been over the last few years. Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, and I think that part of that traveling around, sometimes you'd go to a location, you'd drive around, talk to some builders, and you'd go back and you'd like, I, I wonder if I made any change or else you'd get done with a, a, a lecturing event and people would go, hey, could I have your slides? And you're like, well, not really. It doesn't do you any good to take the slides. What you really need to do is get the story that went with the slides, right? So the strategy was to build a facility. We started off with a, um, a proof of concepts uh, facility in Phoenix, Arizona. And what we did is we designed a training center where we would have both lecturing, but also a lab. And um, uh, anybody that has had the pleasure of working with Justin Wilson, he's, uh, he's a really great uh, uh, building science expert. He's uh, uh, tremendous in the lab and chemistry and research. He's just an extraordinary. So we would do a lecture in the front about how the science works. And then people would go in the back and, and we'd actually start stuff on fire if we needed to or add water to it and shake it all up and see what happens. And that seemed to be a better approach. Those were two day events. And uh, now we do ones for HVAC, for ventilation contractors, for buildings. And then we do, we're doing advanced ones on high performance buildings, net zero enclosures, how to really take it to the next level. And I'd say everybody that comes walks away, you know, kind of changed with their process. We see someone walk away and they pick up the phone and they call back to the office and go, stop, stop. Uh, we got, we got, we got to change something. I just learned something today that we've been doing and it's wrong. Uh, we have to make an adjustment. So I, I think that that is the way we're, we're continually learning. We also created about 12 years ago an app it's called Construction Instruction. It's free. Um, and it has well in excess of about 10,000 assets on it. And there's animations, there's videos, there's stuff that go, goes back a little ways that uh, I filmed in the uh, early 2000s. It's still relevant because the science is the same, right? Physics hasn't changed. So CI has really been a strategy there in Denver now is our new facility. And it's about seven miles from the airport. And it's about uh, almost uh, 11,000 square feet of training facilities, research work, uh, lab and presentations. And so we're looking forward to having people back uh, in this post-COVID thing, but we're also going to be doing some of these training sessions virtually so that uh, people can sign on, maybe spend a few days uh, going through these events virtually. We'll do the training, we'll go in the lab, we'll do a bunch of uh, research work. And uh, since COVID actually in March, we have recorded uh, probably in the range of 50 hours of virtual training um, that's available on the app for free as well. So it's just construction instruction app and people can learn a lot from that, Adam. Yeah, I was going to say, you've probably reached more people over the last year than maybe you did in the previous year. Just as you've gone virtual, you've installed some capabilities and so forth. 
that's true. We'd have a, we would do a, a, a webinar and have maybe 300 people join the webinar. We would put it up on the app and we would find 10,000 people watched it over the next uh, month or so. Uh, probably 130 to 140,000 eyes have now watched some of those webinars. And it's really nice to see that uh, they're very factual. They're very stri strategically uh, focused on how to make certain segments work. We did tips and tricks on flashing and water management and it took four episodes uh, to do all of them. And that's still lots more to do. So uh, uh, thank you for that. Cause it's, I think it's an exciting time to learn about what we're doing and where we need to go. I agree. So if I was to ask you, and you touched on this a little bit at the beginning, but you know, if I'm a, if I'm a builder, I'm a contractor, um, why is building science relevant? One for the industry and two for me uh, in particular, why do I need to know about the physics of a building? If I'm, you know, doing a framing or installing windows or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a great question, Alan. You know, I, I think that sometimes we hear that word, you know, science and we all go, come on, you know, it, it seems complicated. Some of us didn't like it and some people didn't like it in school. And the idea though, is that our buildings are very complex. When you think about trying to take a building, I'm going to stick it out in a variety of climate zones so that could get, you know, 50 inches of rain or eight inches of rain. It could get uh, summer temperatures of 120 degrees or, or winter temperatures of minus 40. And uh, how does that building and the materials and all the trades and all the expectations somehow keep the client inside comfortable at about 73 degrees, 74 degrees, right? Somehow I've got to make all of those things happen. So there's thermal insulation, there's moisture that's in the building, whether I generate it or I need to put it in. Uh, I need to take it out at different times to prevent things like mold and other challenges that could exist. Um, we need to make sure that the building is safe, right? I mean, I've got to make sure that if there's combustion equipment, this doesn't spill back and causes harm. We know that the indoor environment is full of potential pollutants based on whatever I do. I might put in chemicals, light candles and have all kinds of things. So what we've learned is that the science of building is how do you control three basic fundamentals? The flow of heat, the flow of air, and the flow of moisture. And of those three fundamentals, you can imagine the physics that goes along with each one. So um, if I build a wall in Minnesota and I don't control airflow, I potentially rot the building as I insulate it so that energy and moisture could flow through the building, find a cold surface and condense. And now my beautiful building that I've spent lots of money on and I've housed my family in could not only be rotting, but could hold things like mold. So understanding the science of buildings is essential if we want them to be healthy, safe, durable, and efficient. And um, now we have to know more about it. And as I mentioned earlier, I think we have a lot of the science figured out. The, the final part of this science piece is, is the chemistry. You brought this up earlier. You said, what about chemistry? Well, did you know that certain products and certain sealants and certain things don't match together, right? You've got to make sure that this product is compatible with that one. And nobody really does that research very well. So unfortunately, sometimes somebody goes, I got that in the store and I paid this for it and it was pretty inexpensive. That thing was on sale. I'll smash them all together, hoping that it's going to make, hoping it's going to make a difference at the end. And you're like, oh, they weren't supposed to be put together they're the wrong chemistry so now we have to realize that buildings should last how long and maybe that's a question for you alan you know i you think about this all the time and i think about it all the time is it fair to think a building should last 100 years and some markets builders are going oh more than that and some i've heard builders go 25 and i said well i think getting to the first mortgage would be an awesome goal but <laughs> most most people think that 100 is a really fair lifespan european buildings have lasted for centuries 
I think we have to realize that to make a building last through all the variations of occupants and the variations of weather, we have to do this better. So on, on the building science relevant, relevancy question, um, you describe you know, the, the building has to work in different climates. Certainly if I'm a national builder, I may have to build differently in the Northeast and I do in the Southwest, Southeast, et cetera. If I'm a local builder though, I, I for the most part have to um, uh, manage or become an expert maybe in one climate zone, fair, fair statement? That's a great statement, actually. I, I would say you you what you master your local marketplace. Now, there's variations, of course. You know, Dallas has expansive soils. You know, um, if you look at climates like you know Minnesota, they have frozen soil. Um, I give them a bad time all the time. I, it's year round, but it's really not. But if you look at the uh, the idea that national builders have a tremendous challenge. Uh, if you're building, we've got one of the builders that we work with is, uh, you know, in, in 23 markets. Try to imagine all the variation, not only variation in climate, but you have a variation in trades. In one market, this contractor always does this work. In another market, two contractors do this. We have different names for some trade contractors in one market. There's a cornice guy in the Northwest. Whoever knows who a cornice guy is. <laughs> So if you looked at a cornice guy, he goes, yeah, we do all the cornice. And you're like, okay, I've never known to be a cornice guy. So, so not only do you have regional variations, but you have, um, you know, national ones. But you're right. If you live in a market, let's say you live in, um, you know, Springfield, Missouri, um, you better know what it's like, what the climate is, the rain, the tornadoes, the, the weather, whether there's, you know, seismic issues, and then very much dial into that and make sure you want not only understand all of those, but your trade's ability to bring that knowledge to the table. And now that the trades are able to do that, you are responsible for that house. Um, a homeowner trusted you. They gave you a very large sum of money and said, I'm trusting the fact that you know all of this because you're a professional. It says professional builder. That means you know all of these pieces. You know how to not only coordinate a team, but you understand the science about wh what you're doing and the safety and health of my family. And that's why what we're doing today and, and why education is essential. You don't learn this accidentally. You have to get uh, trained to do it. Yeah. And then so layered on top of all that, of course, then is the code official, right? Who has kind of the ultimate say in whether a particular building practice might um, be allowed or not. They have to contend with that complexity as well. Yeah, and that's at the just recently and in in currently is one of my great uh, challenges, I think, is that, um, you know, we, we, uh, we oftentimes have trade code officials that uh, don't even agree in the same community. Uh, a builder will be there and some code guy walks up and he goes, oh no, I've got Mike. Or here comes, uh, you know, Bonnie, the other code official. They're always going to give me a bad time about something. And I think that the challenge is that in the U.S. we have a, such a variation of code adoption um, that it's amazing. There's actually currently, I think there's still left nine states that don't have statewide building codes in them. Colorado's one of them, so is Arizona. So now I get a jurisdiction that adopts one code or another. I live in the county of Maricopa. They're on the 2012 code. Um, the county, the city inside of Maricopa, my county is Scottsdale. They're on the 2018 code. Hmm. The city of Phoenix that butts up to it is the 2009 code. So how can there be that kind of variation in one city where a code official here has got a check on a building that's under a different jurisdiction? So codes and, and, and the code officials can be very difficult because we are really subjected to their decision process, yet many times they don't bring the, the latest knowledge because that's not their job. Their job is to say, I think this is what I read. 
I think this is what I understand based on the code book that I, um, I'm enforcing. And I'm gonna come around and make sure that's done. I'd say all of them are trying to do a good job. I've met some extraordinary building officials. Um, and so I think it's a very, sometimes a, a, a forsaken job. I don't think it's always appreciated, but I think it creates some challenges the way it, it functions uh, currently. So how are we doing then as an industry in terms of applying, a, you know, building with the building science perspective? If, you know, maybe it's not fair to ask you to give us a grade, but um, what are your thoughts on how, how we're doing so far? Well, I, you know, I think that that's a good, a really good question, Alan, because I think it's the variation is staggeringly you know, um, wide. I, I don't even think an, an A to F is a fair uh, assessment because the range is quite dramatic. I, I see builders that are building double A. I mean, they're just crushing it. They're building a beautiful job. Um, they're being careful from the foundation up. They're doing capillary breaks in markets that need them. Uh, they're doing great waterproofing with drainage. They're building this house to really be far and away exceed the code, not because they're trying to do anything other than build a really good house for the clients that have trusted them with their money. So I've met some builders that, I'm not kidding you, are world-class uh, builders. Um, I would say then as that market changes and steps, of course, there's always builders that on the other end. Uh, I go to houses sometimes, Alan, that are the sloppiest framing I've ever seen. Uh, no attention to detail around windows, terrible flashing, and I have pictures. I have probably 10,000 photos I've taken and some of them are, are honestly appalling and that would be something I've done in the last two weeks. So I would say the grading is really dramatic and it's about the trade and about the, the builder themselves. Um, and I think uh, that's part of our difficulty. So just because you have a code doesn't mean it's well built. Um, it really comes down to the integrity of the individual. If I'm a builder and I believe that what I'm doing is a craft, which is what it is, I have a responsibility to the client that's entrusted me with the money they're giving me. And I'm gonna be the, an expert at my craft. Um, that's the thing that I hope uh, governs how we rate each other, but um, more importantly, how we look at an industry. There's, there's builders here in Phoenix that are spectacular and builders, I wouldn't, I would let them build a doghouse for me. <laughs> and I don't mean that to be mean, I just mean it to be honest. There's some very big ranges between quality right in the same town. Yeah. Let me get back to building science just a little bit. Um, are there areas, you mentioned that the science has come a long way. Are there areas in building science um, where there's still not alignment or agreement amongst the, the experts like yourself? I'm thinking of, uh, you know, basement, what do you do to a basement wall um, below grade? What, what about attic spaces, those kinds, those kind of things? Are there, are there parts of building science where there's still not um, agreement uh, amongst the professionals? Well, that's a good question, Alan. Of course, you have to bring up the tough ones. You know, I mean, I think that there's uh, there are things like crawl spaces that are still seem seems to be in flux. You know, do you condition or non-condition a crawl space? In an attic, do you um, isolate the attic and cathedralize the insulation? If you do, what type of insulation has to provide a diffusion vent at the ridge? You know, there's a lot of those kind of stories that are still a little bit in flux. So you're right, there are some questions about that basements. Uh, when I was in Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Underground Space Center did a beautiful series of um, uh, research and, and uh, testing for decades, literally. And they realized that, you know, we've got foundations in dirt, we've got to protect them from seeing water, uh, capillary rise in those materials drying to the building. We know a lot of that and how to manage that. So um, putting waterproofing uh, materials on the outside of a building using drainage mats. For example, in Canada, 
they're required to put a drainage mat on the outside of foundations to really control the flow of, of liquid water and soil and, and um, uh, hydroscopic pressure. So if we look at uh, hydrostatic pressure, I'm sorry. And so if you look at that, um, I would say you're right that there are applications that are that vary, but I would say that the technology and the products in the marketplace could easily um, make those all uh, correct. But I would agree with you, Alan. There are a few places where uh, rain screens, for example, I believe a rain screen needs to be on nearly every cladding system. And I'm saying here in Arizona too. So whether you're using stucco and other cladding systems, I think we have realized that as we insulate buildings better, we reduce the drying rate of the structure. As we make them incredibly airtight, we reduce the drying rate of the structure. So now we have to make sure that whatever water does find its way, maybe past our cladding, it finds, finds a quick trip out and dries quickly. So what are, um, do you see some common misapplications or misunderstandings of building science and how it shows up in a wall system or a roof or, or something like that? What's been your experience? I do. Yeah, I think that a couple of things. I'll just kind of move maybe a little bit from the outside in, but I would say that we still seem to be battling a little bit with the technology of installing windows properly. And I still see a little bit of debate there. I see some very sloppy installations of windows. And, and the idea is very, very clear. You put a window in an opening, you provide enough space around the window. You then, I prefer backer rod and sealants. Uh, on the inside, on the outside, the nailing fin is only sealed on three surfaces and the bottom fin is left open. You then secure that window to the opening and making sure that when the water uh, gets past the window for whatever reason, it goes to the bottom and drains back out. That is as fundamental as it gets and still not accomplished in many markets. I'd say that's part of it. I'd say thermal insulation is a big deal. You know, if we're gonna use fiberglass bats or, or spray foam, um, uh, people really have to look at the application, the installation of product. And I see a lot of gaps in quality there. Um, a bat has to be perfectly installed as does foam. People think spray foams are this miracle cure and it's not. It needs extra attention, proper chemical mix. Uh, and we have to make sure the ratios are, are, are on. Uh, I think there's other couple pieces about air tightness, where we seal the building inside, outside, or both. Those things are critical and need to continue. And then I'll add the last two things, just, just in terms of, in the essence of time, combustion safety. We, we need to um, make sure we have no open combustion in the buildings. And we also need ventilation. And I've been talking about this since, you know, 84. How do we make sure that we provide everybody with a fresh uh, uh, and, and uh, continuous ventilation. And houses need to have ventilation for health and safety. So from the outside in, manage windows, flashing and penetrations, cladding systems that need rain screens, insulation that's well done beautifully, air sealing approaches that are done properly, ventilation and combustion safety are really the fundamentals that have to happen for a building to survive. There's lots of nuances in there, but that's the general gist. So let's talk building codes for a moment. We just had the, uh, the 2021 codes, I guess, are either in draft form or maybe they've been published. I'm not exactly sure where we're at, but they're a significant change from the previous um, ver code versions, right? 2018, 15, so forth. Do you, obviously states will adopt those over the coming years and enforce them over the coming years. Do you foresee going forward that there's more room through the energy codes and the building codes to make uh, additional improvements in a home's, you know, sustainability and durability? Well, that's a good question, Alan, because, you know, I think that the code right now is quite stringent, you know, the 2021, even the 2018s, and, and even the 15. If you look at the codes, they've gotten much more stringent. And I would say that the, the 21 code has really gotten to a place where 
the building enclosure has been part of the code process. Before it was really structure, um, you know, uh, safety and basically electrical safety and, and plumbing, of course. But now we've really moved into things like weather barriers, um, air sealing, and in some cases, uh, air tightness, ventilation as requirements following ASHRAE standards. So I think we're watching the code get much more specific about the details and how they're being followed. Um, you can imagine the, mo the amount of work and extra effort that puts on a code official, right? How do you keep up to speed in a three-year code cycle to see what's changed, what process works? Uh, a builder might actually know more oftentimes uh, than the code official does and say, wait a minute, I attended a workshop, I, I watched a video online, this is the right way to do it, and the code official might not know. So those progressive changes um, really can push an industry pretty hard because I use this term many times, I say that builders don't build houses, trades do. So because the trade base is who's really building the house, right? The framer, the plumber, the electrician, the cladding contractor, the weather barrier, the window installer, those people now have to get up to speed on the code and they really oftentimes are not. So they're either under the, uh, the direction of a code official that says that doesn't work or you can't do that, but all of it is kind of a mess. And um, so I think if you actually, you got to sit down with your trades, if I was a builder, I'd say, bring your trades in often. Here's what we're doing. Here's why we do this. Here's where the code's going. I don't care what the code adoption is in my community. I'm going to build to the 2021 because I think it happens to be um, 2021. So if I was a homeowner and say, awesome, I got a house that was built to the 2012 code in, in 2021, I don't know if I'd be happy about that. Right. <laughs> so I, I, I think we expect that people should be building to the newest code of the day. Right. No, I don't, I don't disagree at all. When you, um, as you work with builders across the country, so you mentioned uh, window installs, a challenging area, uh, ventilation, you like to see, you know, good ventilation practices, uh, combustion safety, any other areas that jump out at you? I'm thinking of things like waste and HVAC. And are there other areas that the builders just, you know, need to dig in maybe a little bit harder and, and, and learn about and then start to apply in their business? Yeah, again, you know, as I mentioned earlier about the nuances, you know, each time you move into a different sector, I'd say we have one of the most, we have probably one of the more wasteful industries in terms of, uh, you know, what we see in the wood pile. I'll often, I did a study um, about a year and a half ago of a job site, and we did about uh, 12 houses in the study. And we really studied how much waste was in, in the dumpsters. And I found uh, waste of massive amounts of lumber, of uh, building materials that were far from um, waste. I found uh, boxes, full, full boxes of ductwork. So I would say waste is a pretty big thing because what's in the dumpster is really a dumpster full of money. And that's the way it should get looked at. Every time I look at that dumpster and know that I'm emptying it three or four times during construction, is there anything I could have done to improve that uh, deal with recycled materials? You know, and, and I would also say that you know, if we look at um, these kind of conservation issues, you know, where are we? What are we going to do to make these buildings, in terms of energy efficiency, result in a smaller HVAC? Because every time I add insulation, I make the building tighter. The HVAC system should, by nature, by definition get smaller and simpler. But I often see, I, I'm, I'm here in Arizona, Ellen, I see houses that are 2,800 square feet with two four-ton air conditioners <laughs> mounted up in the attic. The attic's 180 degrees on a sunny day. Who would do that today? And that happened in a site I was at three weeks ago. And I was like, why are we still running ductwork all over the attic, um, oversizing equipment to compensate for that? We're, we're so much better than that. And um, finding a way to get the ducts inside conditioned space 
there was a couple national builders recently, one in particular that has announced that they're going to build to a significantly higher standard by 2024. And their objective building, you know, nine to 10,000 homes a year is to say, that's enough. We're going to manage waste. We're going to right size our heating and ventilation systems. We're going to put the right ventilation system in for the climate zone. And we're going to really make a strive to build a great building that we think is also cost competitive. Every time we talk about this, everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about the price? And I'm like, actually, um, Gord Cook up in Toronto has demonstrated that you can build net zero houses for nearly the same price. If you just focus on making sure you know what to take out every time you add. Now, let's say that it's it's definitely going to cost more uh, as you add things like solar and other, other components, but it doesn't have to be a high price. And I would say that, that, Alan, we should be able to move all of our housing stock into a higher performance level very quickly if we would all stop long enough to say, let's learn the right approach, um, engage uh, our manufacturers and their support teams to teach us the right way to do stuff. And that can happen. Yeah. So let me, let's talk a little bit about some of the work you do um, with your customers. I'm just thinking as you've probably seen a lot as you've traveled around the country, around the world, what are, what's one of the funniest or strangest things you've seen on a job site? I know I've been with you on a job site where we've seen like 10 studs to the, to, you know, framing out a window, packing out a window. Yeah. Um, that, that's probably common, unfortunately. What, um, what are some of the funnier, stranger things that you've seen uh, in your travels? Well, that's a good question because there's no shortage of things that uh, we call, I call them head shakers, right? Sometimes I'll look at something and go, now, now I didn't see that one coming, right? And uh, people kind of, uh, you know, putting things in, you know, incorrectly. The framing thing is a really a big deal that uh, uh, many times we, again, rely on a trade to do something that uh, we, they, we assume they know what's going on. I was standing in a, in a project in Dallas. And uh, the, the contractor was uh, all dressed in hazmat gear because he was spraying um, uh, foam into the floor joists in the garage. And I'm um, standing there while there's, the garage had been filled with, uh, with gypsum for the uh, sheetrock to happen soon afterwards. And I look in there and here's a guy standing in hazmat suit where his buddy waiting for him to get off of work is standing with his arm leaning up against the drywall. And of course he's smoking a cigarette, right? So he's not in only a flammable location. He's, he's watching his friend in a hazmat suit while he's having a cigarette. And I, I remember calling him over saying, come here for a minute. Um, I had it standing outside the garage. I go, do you see what's kind of going on here that that guy is in a hazmat suit for a reason. You probably shouldn't be here. And he goes, oh, I do it all the time. And I was like, Sounds good. Uh, you might want to head back in there. So I, I think that there's a lot of uh, things that happen on sites that probably aren't about safety. Uh, and that's the last thing I would probably bring up that I see people without hard hats on, without the safety uh, precautions, being up on a roof. I was um, in a site with the, one of the largest builders in the country, the VP of construction. We looked up on the roof and the strapping for the tie-offs for the guy up on the roof are laying in the valley, but he's not at attached to them. <laughs> so uh, I remember the builder walked up and he goes, come here. And he waves to the guy, he goes, come off the roof. And the guy comes up, he goes, why don't you have that connected? He goes, well, I forgot the clasp today. And he goes, go home go get your clasp and come back tomorrow. I want you to go home every night to your family. I don't want you to get hurt. Right. And uh, I've, I've been on job sites where the guys are handing up pieces of OSB to the guy on the second floor when it's windy and they're not tied off. And I went up to a job soup and I said, hey, that guy over there, he's gonna fly, you're gonna find him in the next county if he's holding onto that plywood. He goes, sometimes they tie off, sometimes they don't. So <laughs> I, I think that's a part of what, what, what we gotta keep improving all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> Working for DuPont, I couldn't agree more. 
<laughs> Couldn't agree more. So, okay. So you have builders, um, you know, they've, they've, they've heard you talk, you've, you've uh, convinced is probably too strong a word, but they've made the decision that they're going to improve their building practices and apply some, some better building science um, uh, principles to their construction. What does that journey look like for a builder when, as they start to work with you, you know, how often do they meet with you or do you go out and visit them? What type of, how fast can they begin to enact change? Um, I imagine it's little step baby steps first, but what does that journey look like uh, for a builder that, that wants to move into build a better home and, and, you know, have you help them? Yeah. And I, I think that there's a lot of uh, really, really bright people in, in this country that know how to help. And I, I would say that you're right about the first thing you have to make a choice to change, to start with, right? Every business and everything that you do, you have to make a decision to, to make, to do something different. There were some years ago that uh, Justin and I and Gord did these presentations. They were week long sessions um, and we would go through the entire process. And um, like I said earlier, somebody would be calling back to the shop saying, stop, we have some things we need to, to learn. So I would say that each time a builder decides to make a change, it should be um, baby steps only in that you take it in the proper order. So let's say that if I'm gonna build a building, I should really make sure that I manage water first. Now who's on my water team? So you bring in, we bring in people like the cladding contractors, the foundation people, and really look at how do we manage waters? See, it doesn't make sense to make a house energy efficient if it leaks pretty dumb, right? And um, if you're going to make a building airtight, you have to make sure that you then put the proper details in place to understand that the insulation and the air sealing have to go together. Otherwise, the insulation won't perform properly. But as soon as you make those steps, you have to have the heating contractor understand that now you have to do HVAC and make sure that the ventilation is existing. So we ask a builder to sit down oftentimes and say, let's go through your teams let's have maybe a, nowadays, let's have a Zoom call. Um, but in the after post Zoom, post COVID, I think we'll have people that would come to CI Live. And we have classes on, you know, managing water, we have HVAC classes, and a builder has to begin bringing his trades to an education cycle. I would say the other things we encourage are mock-ups. And I've seen an exponential growth in mock-ups on job sites lately. They've always been a part of commercial construction, but I'm seeing multifamily and now residential construction start to build mock-ups. And what I mean by, of course, the mock-ups is that you build a small example of what you expect, and it better be done right. You put it on the job site or by the job trailer and some, somebody comes up and they go, uh, I'm installing your windows. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Well, I have a specific set of instructions I expect. Now, over there by the trailer, you're going to see a mock-up. Why don't you go over there and, and follow that exactly? Oh, no, no, I've been doing windows for 20 years. I've got this. And you're like, well, now that worries me even more. I need you to go make sure that you understand exactly what's expected. So I would say we try to take people through a basic education of the physics and the science because it matters. And then we also show them a technique at, at CI Live when they come back into the back of the room uh, to the lab where Justin is, they'll actually install a window. We have a cart there and they pick the products and they pick the things and they actually put a window in. And um, then they go home that night and they're all talking about their day. The next morning, uh, the sealants have, have pretty much cured and uh, Justin rolls it out to the back in the, in, the, in the road behind the building and he attaches water to it and, and sprays it full of water. And they, they watch it fail. And the guy goes like, I've been doing that for years. You're like, so how would we do it better? And we'll roll one out and show them how important it is that their, their shingle flash, that the layers are in place, that the sealants are compatible. So once they learn that approach, it's amazing. You can't go back and do it the old way. So I think education, 
hands-on experience, training the trades, and then in the end, it's validating the performance. How do you make sure that the blower door test tells you the right information? You check the ventilation. Do I have the right amount of airflow? Is it been controlled correctly? Is the heating system designed and installed properly? Do the flows work? Um, is the air conditioning uh, system actually been installed with the right pressures and the right, uh, um, you know, uh, freon and, and its, uh, its, its um, components that make it work? That's all part of a strategy that if you go from, from point A to point B and all across that spectrum, it's a, it's a guided process, but it works really well. So yeah, you made me think, I, um, I do a little bit of coaching, a special Olympics basketball. And one of the coaches I work with played some semi-pro ball and he has a saying, practice till you get it right, then practice till you can't get it wrong. So I'm thinking like, so if you were to, if I'm a builder starting with water management, I'm going to work till I get it right. And then keep training my crews and ingrain it until we can't get it wrong. That, and that yeah. might take a month, three months, six months, something like that. Yeah, that's a great that's a great analogy, Alan. I, you know, I, I think that if you look at uh, golfers, you know, a professional golfer has multiple coaches. Uh, professional, uh, um, you know, quarterback has a weight coach, a, a nutrition coach, and a, a passing coach. You know, we we all think that if you've done it once, you've got it nailed, and that's the biggest problem we have is that you should always continually improve. Uh, I would encourage builders, you know, maybe on a weekly basis, bring your teams together and say, hey, folks, here's what we're doing. Got another thing that's happening today. I want you all to see what I expect so that it's clear. At the end of the day, I want all of you to clean up the site after you're finished so it's a safe place to be. Um, and I see a lot more builders focusing on things like that, that training all the time, coaching all the time, mentoring all the time. They, you know, most, most people have learned from somebody who is older and wiser you need to turn around and do that with someone else, but raise the bar on your knowledge, share it with the people on your team and share it continuously. Always learn, always share. So once, uh, let's say I get my water practices, you know, my management practices in good shape, what might be a next natural area to focus on? Would you say like air tightness or insulation, installation? Um, what's, what, where, do you, where do you see builders going next after water management? Yeah, I think that's a good question, Alan, you know, because can, can water management be part of your air, air tightness strategy, right? So if I do a really good job and expect my weather protection layer and my window installations and my penetrations in the walls to be watertight, that inherently should be part of an airtight package as well. I now move to the inside and realize that the thermal insulation in the wall cavities are, I only have one shot at this. <laughs> you don't go back and fluff it up a few years later. So you pick the right product, but you now have to find out where is there potential air leakage that might occur prior to the insulation. You're looking around for bypasses or framing anomalies or things that haven't uh, gone so well. Pick the right sealant to apply it at that time, then install the insulation free, free from voids and gaps if it's a fibrous product. Um, if it's foam, be very careful about your ratios and mixes. Now, once that's installed well, you can then move in and say, so now how do I look at my interior air barrier? Am I going to use a gasket? Am I going to seal the, uh, the drywall as part of the air sealing package? In very cold climates, maybe I'm looking at some vapor control strategies. But those are the things that really have to slowly move forward. And, and that's why I mentioned earlier, get the water management part right, then move towards the thermal enclosure and the air tightness 
And once you've dialed that in, remember simultaneously, you must be installing ventilation because if you act, there's no such thing as accidentally too tight. Once you start doing a great job in managing the water, your building is tighter. So now make sure installation, insulation of, the installation of ventilation is, is part of the package immediately. This isn't something like, oh, I'll see if the blower door result tells me that. It is critical that you do that and you got to do it right away. So that's a great uh, example, Alan, that progressively moving in that direction gets you to where you've now got a quiet house, thermally comfortable, watertight, fresh air and ventilation, properly managed uh, energy use. I think that sounds like a pretty good product to me. That's great. So the codes are driving, at least prescriptively, towards more uh, continuous insulation, you know, on the exterior of the home. Correct. That scares a lot of builders. Um, why, why is getting continuous exterior insulation, uh, you know, outside of a home, why is that so challenging to the industry? It's done in commercial a fair bit. Why is it not done so much in residential and what can we do about it? Well, it's, a, it's another really good question, Alan, because it isn't, very, it isn't as easy as it sometimes seems. It seems like all we got to do is attach it to the outside of the sheathing and we're good to go, stick the siding over the top and we're set. We, we know that there's a lot of things that change. And if you're a builder and you're going to add one inch of, of exterior insulation, very good strategy, interrupts the conductive loss of the framing, has a tremendous impact on comfort, noise, and all the benefits that exterior insulation is. And I think as an industry, we will see that happening everywhere. Um, that a layer of continuous insulation on the outside is essential where we have to go as, a, as, an, as an industry. But once you do that, you make a lot of changes, right? So my window reveals are going to be a little bit different. How do I buck the window on a little bit? My penetrations now are going to be a little further beyond the uh, normal location. Can I attach my siding and my cladding systems to uh, a layer of insulation? Uh, if I do that, um, how much can I attach it to? For example, the, uh, the uh, sheet foam industry did a good job quite a few years ago getting um, companies like uh, Hardy and, and LP sidings to get together and say, so what's the most uh, space between the siding and the, and the stud that we can allow so that a builder can do that. And they did a great job up front. It was an inch. And after an inch, you need to take another approach, but you use a longer nail, secure that through the insulation. As long as you hit the stud, you've got a great application there. So exterior insulation can feel daunting. Um, it's a critical thing, I think, for future housing. But what I would recommend again is a mock-up. Um, build a couple of uh, assemblies and use an ins insulation on the outside, figure out what product you wanna use. Um, if you go beyond an inch, for example, if we go to Minnesota, I better have two inches. If I put two inches on the outside, you can imagine what that changes, right? I've got deeper everything. My cladding now needs to be put onto a furring strip. So I put on two inches of insulation. I put a one by four furring strip, attach that back to the stud. But now I can attach my claddings to that exterior furring strip. So um, there's a, a, a group called Co-Climate Housing Research Center, now part of, uh, of um, uh, NREL. Um, in one of the US labs, and they've done a, a great job of looking at how exterior insulation in climates like Alaska are done. And they've got a website at cchrc.org, and they've created that. On the CI website, we probably have a dozen animations on how to put exterior insulation on, how to fasten the claddings, how to put the furring strips on. So yes, it's a little more complex. Yes, it takes some training and, uh, and process, but my rule of thumb on change like that is that you've got to do three or four of them. Maybe, a, maybe by the time you've got your fifth house, 
the builder is going to go, okay, I've got a great technique. I came up with another idea. When shall I put that on? But once you do it, you'll never go back. I've got builders in Park City um, in Salt Lake that are doing an amazing job of installing exterior insulation on high-end houses, beautiful stuff. They never, they never fail. And it took them a little while to get it right, but now they've dialed it in and they wouldn't do it any other way. That's great. It's always so interesting hearing you, hearing you talk, Mark. You always learn so much. Um, and for those listeners um, out there who have not been to CI Live, either catch them on a webinar or even better, you know, when we can get to Denver and um, hear them live. You'll hear the training. You'll go through the training, a little bit of classroom, and then hands-on in the back, as Mark described. It's it's just a, it's a great uh, day and a half, two days, and, and it'll pay huge uh, dividends for you in your business. Let me, I want to have a little fun with you here. Let's, uh, let's take a quiz. I'm going to quiz you. Uh oh. So um, I think you, I think you know the answer to these. They're, they're not too difficult. The first one I hear is, uh, well, I'm sorry. These are true or false, true or false. Heat flows up. True or false? Uh, that's not true. That's false. Why is that false? Well, heat flows from warm to cold. So it flows down. If you're standing on a concrete slab in your basement and you're in bare feet, your feet are cold. The heat from your body is traveling down into the slab to balance temperature differentials. So what really does rise is heated air. Um, and so understanding heat flow is why we insulate under a concrete slab. It's why we insulate foundation walls. It's why the vertical walls and the and any horizontal applications are always thermally insulated. The house should be, the building should be insulated on all surfaces because heat flows in the direction of temperature differential from warm to cold. Is that a common, do you hear that a lot from builders? Is that a common misperception? Well, I, th I think so. I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that they don't, when we say, when we make that kind of question, that comment, they'll always say it flows up. Um, and I think it's a kind of a natural tendency and, and you're kind of maybe splitting hairs on it because, uh, you know, heat is convection. It can, it uh, creates this warming of the air molecules and then they rise because they're right, less right. That's a normal physics function, but it's pretty easy to go, huh, that's a good point. You know, because I think you've heard somebody saying the cold is coming up from the floor and it's actually not what's happening. Right, right, right. How about this one? This one I hear a lot and you get, I'm sure you get challenged on it. And that is that a house needs to breathe. We can't yeah. build, Mark, you can build a house too tight. It needs to breathe. Yeah, it's probably the most common question I would say I get. I would say, I see people in the back of the room, they're shaking their head like this when you're talking. And I'm like, wait a minute, what's wrong? Why are you shaking your head? Because they're building these things too tight and someone's going to die, you know? And um, I, I think that the challenge there is that it seems that old houses that were drafty and leaky were better, right? And the assumption was that uh, we had radiators all around the perimeter in those old houses to kind of heat the walls up because they were drafty. The curtains would move when the radiator came on, keeping keeping to manage the draft. And and people don't want that anymore. I, I don't want a house that is leaky and drafty and noisy. I want a quiet, comfortable, draft-free house. So I would say that we can't build leaky because you can't actually control a leaky building. So I usually throw this out. So who's engineering your leaks? And um, <laughs> You know, did somebody uh, kind of kick a hole in the sheathing over by the bedroom to make sure you got some fresh air? And here's the way the physics works. The air leaks back into the building through the path of least resistance. So if you have natural buoyancy of air and stack effect, air leaving out through the roof, it could come in through around a bottom plate in a bedroom. It could come in from the garage, 
from the basement in through a sump pail that's bringing in soil gases and, and molds and, and radon. Uh, those are the things that we can't let happen anymore and they happen in leaky buildings. So a tight building you can control. I can put in just the right amount of ventilation for the occupants. I can understand the right amount of heat flow. A leaky building is a, is a really big disaster. It's gonna leak water, leak air, and pollutants. And so that's why we can't go back to building leaky buildings. That might've worked in the 20s when the walls weren't insulated. Enough energy flowed back and forth across the walls. Yes, they dried quickly. But as soon as we added thermal insulation and tightened the buildings for comfort and managing the cost of energy, we can't go back to kind of leaky. It's either tight or leaky and uninsulated, but you got to pick one, but kind of in the middle doesn't work. <laughs> right, right. Great. All right. Well, you pass the quiz, Mark. You'll be, oh, you'll be glad to know. <laughs> I was so nervous for a minute there. I just wasn't sure if you're going <laughs> to ask right. me something else. But. <laughs> so, okay. Before we close here, one last, uh, ask you for one last comment. Are there any technology, you know, you work across a lot of um, manufacturers, organizations, uh, builder types and regions and so forth. Are there any technologies or trends or developments that you see that particularly excite you about the future of residential construction? Yeah, I guess that's always a challenge, right? Because there's um, there's parts and pieces of, of our industry that I would see are improving. For example, we see like structurally insulated panels, SIPs panels, um, becoming a little bit more prominent as we look at this challenge with lumber. It's been around for 50 years. It's getting a, a, a much more uh, significant look. We do see ICFs, insulated concrete forms, going up in, in areas that have issues of harsher weather, tornadoes, or just about in any, any climate zones here in Arizona as well. Um, I would say that we're looking at, um, you know, exterior cladding systems and making sure that we're always rain screening those. I think a rain screen, as I mentioned earlier today, that that's essential and it's got to be part of a building in almost every application. I would say HVAC, um, we're seeing organizations like RIA, who's now figuring out a way to um, make ducts that are much cleaner in installation, smaller in diameter, um, tighter in terms of how they fit. And we're seeing that be a, a nice evolution. Um, we're seeing ventilation equipment where the ducts are actually snapped together and um, beautifully done with, with fewer, uh, fewer gaps. Heat pump water heaters. Um, you know, we look at the uh, heat pump uh, HVAC systems that have now been able to take uh, heating and cooling down to um, temperatures of, you know, zero and less and provide full-scale heating and cooling without uh, the, the need for natural gas in some cases. We are seeing an evolution of electrification and in some markets where they're looking at, can we build buildings that don't have any, any combustion fuels? I don't know if that's the most uh, important thing that we do, sealed combustion, natural gas, and things like that are fine. Uh, we just have to be careful with it. So the evolution is really around last thing um, is uh, offsite construction. And I see we're seeing a little of offsite construction in markets where a lumber company or a building uh, company can put together more parts of the house, bringing them out, in, in really on a truck and a flatbed and assembling those on site. So whether they're fully panelized, we see a lot of buildings that are being put fully built in a factory and crane, craned out to site. And I think we're gonna see more of that in the, in the years ahead. So I think we're gonna see some nice evolution of better buildings, better performance and better ways of building because we are seeing a reduction in labor force, Alan. I, I don't think we're gonna continually see a large influx of, of new trained labor. So uh, we're gonna to have to find a way to build a couple million houses a year with fewer people and less material. And we're going to watch innovation make that uh, improve. Yeah, I agree with you. agree with you. Well, Mark, it's been great. Uh, as we close here, I would um, first thank you, obviously. But I would ask if you could, I, I've seen you speak a number of times and you have a 
wonderful quote that you like to use as, as you close. I believe it comes from an old carpenter's handbook. Could you, um, yeah, could I, could I get you to, uh, you say it so beautifully and um, it's so inspirational. Can I get you to uh, give us that quote? Yeah, I would I'd be glad to, Alan. And I, and I hope everybody that listens thinks about what it really means. It was really uh, published in old carpenter's manuals. I had one that was dated back to, mine was from 1955. But in the front cover of a, of a, a book for carpenters, it said um, a little bit of a shortened version of it. It says, when we build, let us think that we build forever. And let it not be for present delight or present use alone. But let it be such work our descendants will thank us for. And I, I think that really represents the fact that in an old carpenter's manual, it meant that take the knowledge of the day and apply it today and make sure that you train those around you to make sure that this is important because change is, is essential, right? The only, the only constant is change. There was another great quote by the former CEO with Ford. He said, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance a lot less. <laughs> so I, I think that what we're trying to accomplish here is let's do a phenomenal job of building great buildings for people that last for, for generations and are healthy and safe. They're beautiful and they're durable. And um, I, would, I would encourage everybody that uh, gets a chance, uh, look at CI and CI Live, look at the web, at the, uh, inter at the uh, app, but really look out for education, listen, learn, ask lots of questions, be amazing at what you do, whether it's building houses or coaching uh, uh, softball, um, be amazing at it and, and always strive to be better. That's great. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. And if obviously, if you found this podcast, you found your way to DuPont's new education hub as well, which is chock full of information too. So check us out, check out the CI construction instruction website, check out the CI app. And with that, we will close. Uh, Mark Liberté, thank you so much for being our guest today. It was a real honor for me. Thank you. Well, it goes right back at you. And thank you for inviting me for such a nice event. And you're doing a great job. And it's always been a pleasure to work with you, Alan. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Alan Hubble, and residentially speaking, that's a wrap. <laughs>